How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope all is good in your world. Life is good. We are going to talk about a pretty grim subject this morning. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We talk about what's happening in Ukraine. We're going to talk about the abomination of what Russia is now doing to Ukraine, which is, you know, you talk about economic warfare and people think that's about trades and tariffs and slapping subsidies on this, that and the other. No, this is real economic warfare. What the Russians are now doing to the Ukrainians is trying to destroy their entire civilian infrastructure for heating, for electricity, for water, and thereby subduing the Ukrainians and forcing them to the table. And John, it seems to me that this is a strategy that Putin has evolved into. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not sure that people are sufficiently angry about what's going on there. I think, and this, it, is, this, it, is, this is a big fear that people become sanitized, the what is going on. Well, sanitized and tired of it. I mean, that's that's the other part of it. Is it, you know, when you, when you talk about the evolving strategy, this wasn't Putin's original strategy. His original strategy was to go in, bake the shit yeah. out of them, regime change, and away he goes. But, and, and also to split the West, yeah. to reveal the inherent weakness of NATO, the inherent weakness of the European Union. the And implicit in that is the sort of, well, they're a whole bunch of pampered Westerners. They yeah. haven't got the gumption to fight. They will cut Too a deal. For war. All that sort of stuff, right? And that has been proved wrong. Yeah. But it's been proved so far. wrong in the sense that the Ukrainians are doing the fighting and all the fighting. Yeah. The West is backing them up. But it's fascinating. If you look at the headlines over the last couple of days, right? They're all about, in this country and all over Western Europe, they're about Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. They're about housing the Ukrainian refugees. I see, for example, now that our government is trying to coax and 
people who own second, all your mates with their holiday homes down the West, okay? <laughs> uh, to actually to actually say, okay. They're all boarded up now. Yeah, well, but they should actually, you know, the idea is we need 20,000 new yeah. homes yeah. for these new. And of course, the, the, the point is that this is exactly what Putin wants. He wants every cabinet all over the West and Western Europe to be making decisions about Ukraine, uncomfortable decisions yeah. about Ukraine, and hopefully forcing Western public attitude against Ukrainian refugees. And the way in which he wants to do that this winter is to bomb the nuclear power stations, the electricity power stations, and the nuclear, being one in the same in many cases. The water infrastructure, yeah. the train infrastructure, everything. It's, it's just so... So he forces more Ukrainians to leave. Yeah. And that's his whole idea, his whole hope is that a migrant, another yet another wave of migrants, will ultimately break the will of the, as you say, too woke for war, of the comfort pampered yeah. Westerners. And they'll say, ah, actually, you know what? Let's cut a deal. It's it's a very, um, or could be a very effective strategy and a much more effective than his original strategy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think, I don't think it will be. I don't think it will be. I think there's two things going on here. I think one is the resolve of the Ukrainian people. Yeah. And the second thing is the resolve of the West, which we talk about. Uh, absolutely. And I th- I think that the, the kind of the Western Europe has just been woken up in many ways. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I don't mean that in a woke way. I mean, in a kind of a... In the original expression, woke, I think, was <laughs> exactly, to exactly. be awake to things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But, but step up to and be in there for the long haul. Yeah, well, well I sincerely hope so, because it looks like it will be a long haul. Well, now, fascinatingly, I want to talk to somebody now. I told you last week when I was in New York, I was at a swanky dinner. Yes, okay, one of your many swanky dinners. One of my dinners. many swanky dinners, of course, yes. okay? And I was kind of, of course, being really into the economic side and talking Stieglitz and all this stuff about economics, mm. all that sort of stuff, right? That's, as I said, for yeah. me, it was like doing keepy-uppies at Maradona, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. That was the real deal, okay, <laughs> right? I know it's sad. Yeah, I know yeah. it's sad. You had his autograph book out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get the hard for an equation, I know it's very sad, but that's our nature, okay? But at the other end of the table, was a journalist from Bellingcat. Right. Now, Bellingcat are this extraordinary newspaper, journalistic outfit, whatever you want to call them, which base a huge amount of their investigations on data, mm. right? So they go in and they buy data, they track down. They're almost like detectives, but rather than using a notebook, they're using data. Yeah. And their main investigator and their editor Okay, is a Bulgarian journalist who won the European Investigative Journalist of the Year for his stories oh, okay. on the identifying identifying the very guys who poisoned Navalny. Okay, he identified them. Right. Okay, and identified the very guys who poisoned Skripal in Salisbury right. Cathedral. Right. Okay. okay, and the daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So better than the UK or the American intelligence yeah. agencies. Right. Yeah. This is extraordinary. His name is Christo Grosev, and he's a Bulgarian journalist. And he was at this table, and he started to talk. And I started to listen. And I was just amazed at his story and amazed what they do, right? So he's on the line now from Vienna, okay? Let's go to him, because this is the story of the people, imagine this, the very people who are pushing the button, which are sending those Dozens and dozens of rockets from Russia 
into Ukraine. These are the ones who are destroying the infrastructure. These are the very people who are executing Putin's plans. And this story, I think you'll find fascinating. So let's go to Vienna and talk to Christo. Christo, welcome to the podcast. That's what, you say. That's what happens. You go have a couple of drinks with some guy in New York and suddenly you're on their podcast. Yeah, and you have a couple of drinks, you think the conversation is interesting, and now you're on the podcast, and it may not be as interesting. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I want to I get to you tracking down the remote, as you, you put them, these remote characters who in Russia are pressing the buttons, sending in, which is now hundreds of missiles into Ukraine, almost, certainly not on a daily basis, but on, certainly on a weekly basis. But I want to get to, but I want to first tell me about Bellingcat. Tell me about your methods. How do you track down? I want you to explain to me how you personally tracked down the men who poisoned Alexei Navalny. Well, Bellingcat started in 2014 as a, a sort of a volunteer outfit, uh, combining a few nerds that just want to do um, go, troll through data on the internet, uh, photographs, uh, posting, social media postings, and try to find hidden secrets in that. So it was a a really amateurish attempt to begin with. But then within a couple of months, it uh, excelled. It proved that it can excel at gathering um, photographic evidence based on social media postings that could solve major crimes. So initially, in the first couple of years, Bellingcat was open source data only, meaning only things that were posted by people on the internet. And you can like find photographs and find uh, clues in them and then uh, piece them together. But over the years, we kind of developed a deep, well, I joined in 2015 as a volunteer, and I contributed a little bit more of a data science behind it, trying to go through databases that are leaked, uh, that you can find on the deep web, on the dark web, or just floating around. Um, these would be leaked databases of uh, hacked emails, of uh, residential databases. I mean, most of the countries like Russia, they have a, a thriving uh, market of uh, selling and buying personal data, and um, a lot of these data sets they find find their web uh, their way to the internet. So we started gathering these data sets. Uh, they're very diverse, combining, as I said, residential databases, uh, lists of residents of particular parts of large cities, passport uh, numbers, and so on and so forth. But basically, you can get absolutely anything you want to have um, on a Russian citizen. So we used such databases to solve the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. And uh, the the full story of how we did it is pretty long. I'll give you a short version. We had previously identified a particular Russian scientific research institute called the Signal Institute that we found was developing secretly chemical weapons in small doses. Until the collapse of the Soviet Union for about 20 years after that, Russia had an official chemical weapons program but then Russia promised to close it down as part of an international convention. And indeed, it closed down the large-scale chemical weapons program, but it continued producing small boutique doses of chemical weapons, such as Novichok, the famous Russian poison, in this lab in Moscow called the Signal Institute. And we had tracked down previously this Signal Institute to uh, the people who traveled to Salisbury, the, the spy catchers, the spy hunters uh, that you may remember, who, according to British police, uh, poisoned the Skripals, the former yes. Russian spy. And we were armed with that knowledge that this lab in Moscow is manufacturing small doses of poison. So when we found out that Navalny was poisoned, 
with Novichok because that's what the the hospital in in Berlin announced. We knew that there cannot be more than one facility in Russia that produces that. So we have to use that lab as the, sort of the, the launch site of our investigation. So what we did is we obtained phone records, call records for the top scientists at this institute, at this lab. And you can do that. You can buy it on the Russian black market. You can buy not, not the content of the phone calls, but the sort of the metadata, who they called, at what time, how long the call was so we got these phone records for the time for the couple of months just before the poisoning of Navalny and the dates of the poisoning, and we started looking for clues. I mean, who who were these scientists talking yeah. to? Were they talking to any security service uh, officers? And yes, we found that they were, and we found five security service officers from the FSB, the, the domestic service of Russia, that were talking to the scientists just before the poisoning took place uh, in the wee hours of, of, of the night just before the poisoning. And then we were able to track that down to a longer conversation that coincided with previous travel of these same officers that followed Navalny. Well, this is what I should say as well. The, these FSB officers who were talking to the scientists, they happened to also travel alongside Navalny to Siberia at the time that he was poisoned. And then we established a longer pattern that so these did you same FSB that officers... From, just, did you establish that from like from flight details or phone yes. calls? And, okay. Two sets of data, phone calls and flight details. That's all we needed to prove this case. And uh, one, one particular very revealing set of data came from the phone records of one of the FSB officers who also has a training in, in medicine and chemical weapons who switched on his phone briefly for about a second... Uh, and then turned it off. Probably that was an operational mistake, but we were able to geolocate that little bit, byte of data to about 200 meters from the hotel where Navalny was staying at that night in wow. the remote corners of Russia's, of Russia's Siberia. So, I mean, yeah, you can explain away everything, but that's very hard to explain. So it means that the, you know, the, the FSB make mistakes. Yeah, this is what I think the most uh, insightful and most useful tool under our belt is the knowledge that they make mistakes. Because before that, most of the investigative journalists were assuming that it's not possible to investigate. It's not knowable what secret services do because they must be perfect, especially the Russian ones. Because one thing that President Putin was uh, trying to sell to his own people for decades was, oh, we, we may not have the best quality cars, we may not have our own computers, but our secret services are by far the the, the best. They're infallible. And Actually, that's not true. And knowing that, you can spend enough time trolling through data and find those rare mistakes. But rare mistakes solve crimes. Precisely. Now, let's let's talk. I mean, because this this is fascinating new departure in journalism, where you're taking data, you're taking geolocations, you're piecing together what would have, in the past, demanded either a whistleblower or some incriminating piece of evidence, or somebody saying, actually, I saw this person doing a witness. What you're doing is you're de-witnessizing, you're actually piecing together the same process, but using this data that you can mine from all sorts of black market sources, other sources. That's true, and uh, de-witnessizing is a perfect uh, verb, and I'll steal it from you. I'll use it to describe <laughs> what we do, <laughs> if you don't mind. But it's literally um, avoiding the middleman who is usually colored by by perception, colored by bias, and sometimes a plant. 
basically a fake uh, fake information is being fed to journalists all the time. So we are trying to do it the other way by just looking at the data and then finding the story. So the witnessizing is the perfect term because we don't mind using witnesses, but we prefer to use them after the fact of cracking the crime based on data alone. They provide excellent context. They provide an explanation of why certain things were done in a certain way. But the sort of chronology of the crime, the the modus operandi of the of the uh, perpetrators, we prefer to derive that purely from data. And I was I was interested uh, when when we were chatting last week that you were saying that you have sources deep within the Russian military, within the Russian industrial complex, the apparatus, who have spoken to you and who will continue to speak to you. That is true. I mean, after um, a, a track record of quite a few successful investigations that, uh, I mean, I don't want to be boastful, but our long series of investigations into the international roaming spies of the GRU, of Russia's military intelligence, which disclosed not only their specific identities, but the way the Russians create their fake identities, it made it impossible for them to operate anymore. So, so we've disabled about 30 spies from ever working again internationally. So you can imagine that a lot of the Russian well, officers within both within the military and the FSB and in government, they kind of respect us. They don't like us, but they respect us. And uh, you can imagine that some of them reach out and try to sort of, well, give us give us clues, give us tips, give us context. And we have to be very careful because by definition, we assume we're being used as uh, just to, to be fed misinformation. But, but you can find a way to establish a source who, as long as you understand their motivation, why they're feeding you information, as long as that's transparent, you can sometimes trust it. So yes, we talk to people, we get insight from people. Now, I want to talk to you about Ukraine, where you've been working for the last six or eight months. And there's an extraordinary investigation just completed. Well, it's ongoing, but you were published in Bellingcat, identifying the people who are actually pressing the buttons on these cruise missiles and these missiles that are going into, that are raining down on the Ukrainians. Explain to me this, the method, how you found these people, you published their names. I mean, it's extraordinary stuff. It's one of the hardest investigations I've worked on because it was long, but also I didn't know when it's complete. I didn't know when we can pull the trigger, no pun intended here, and say ethically, we are ready to publish these names. I didn't know whether at all we should ever be ready to publish these names. These are names of young 20-something Russian military engineers who... Uh, were math wizards or computer science wizards or or gaming wizards and were recruited into the army to be essentially the the coders that programmed the flight path of Russia's deadliest and most precise, allegedly, missiles. These are the cruise long-range missiles. And we knew that this unit exists. We knew that some people do this because... Well, these missiles, technically, they can't program themselves. They You can't just put the end destination and, and press a button because they need to fly very low to the ground. They need to avoid obstacles. They need to have um, the latest uh, sort of map of the and terrain embedded into their memory. So it's almost like a manual programming of each missile that needs to be done. So we were looking since the beginning of the war for who does this? I mean, no military experts knew this. We, we tried to find in literature, but nobody knows who does it in Russia. So we started by the uh, assumption that these people who do the programming must understand the technology and the software in these missiles very well. And we found that there are only two Russian 
schools, academies that actually teach this stuff. One is near Moscow, the other one is St. Petersburg. So we went through uh, literally yearbooks of people who have graduated these uh, two institutes. And we found that uh, about 30 of them, according to resumes they had posted on different portals and also on the way their friends had described them in, in phone books that are linked to the internet, they had an affiliation with a particular uh, unit called GVC, which translates from Russian as the Central Computation Institute of the Ministry of Defense. So we started looking at what that unit does, and it hired and recruited people that are exactly of the type that uh, are needed for missile programming. But we were not sure, so it was just a starting hypothesis. So what we did is we got the phone records, as we do, of the top guy. I mean, he was a, he was a colonel in charge of this unit, and we... By the way, by, there's a lovely little detail that he was a coin collector, Yes, yes. But in yes, his spare yes. time, he collected... A Dutch ancient, coin. <laughs> ancient coins and all right. sorts of coins. That, that no, not only ancient coins, Vatican coins, uh, Portugal oh, wow. coins, coins with small mistakes on it. I mean, this is... we, we For six months, we actually tailed this guy on online because he was buying and selling all the time while programming or controlling a team of 30 people who were uh, killing hundreds and thousands. So that was surreal to watch this in real time. Wow. But anyway, just to answer your question, how we got to the... Uh, to be convinced that he's in charge of the people that do it is that he was getting phone calls exactly from his subordinates exactly just before each of the mass launches of, of missiles at Ukraine. So we did a correlation analysis, a statistical analysis that essentially made it implausible that these phone calls, these surges of phone calls are connected to something other than these arrays of uh, launches. And then what we found is that all of these people, uh, in addition to doing their work, targeting missiles and programming flight paths, they're doing a lot of extraneous stuff while, while at the Ministry of Defense, such as buying and selling coins, uh, bargaining prices of prostitutes, and so on and so forth. And what, what, what I find fascinating is that you also identified a lot of these people were, you know, working in banks a couple of years ago. They were working in different, you know, they're, 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 they have been recruited in recently and they're not on the front line. They're not taking risks. They're actually living quite a normal Russian life. Yeah, and this was the biggest uh, sort of ethical dilemma because you, as a journalist uh, or as an investigator, you start treating them differently than the frontline soldiers. You, you see them almost as civilians that should be allowed a degree of privacy. But then you think about it and, they're not civilians. I mean, they're actually much, much more sinister in what they do on the front line than the ones whose faces we see on the front line. So, yeah, they're doing this with the conviction that they would always be anonymous and they can always go and have a beer with their friend and they would not know what they do. So, again, the dilemma of making their faces and names public was, was a serious one. But ultimately, we consulted with a lot of our colleagues from different media and everybody said, yes, they're not entitled to any privacy. And, and so, for example, that the robot will always be like, you know, let's say you take the American invasion of Iraq, deploying very, very similar types of tactics, that there were Americans in the same position press, pressing sure. buttons, but they haven't sure. been exposed. Well, I mean, and, and maybe they should be. Uh, so I don't I don't have a problem. I and mean, if, if now we were following the American uh, invasion of uh, Mexico, I'm pretty sure that I'll be doing exactly this. We're just not. <laughs> and tell me about what you think... Bellingcat's telling us about the future of investigative journalism because, you know, you're used to the image of the guy with the notebook 
in the corner, waiting, you know, waiting for somebody to give him that little nugget. You know, the kind of, almost the Watergate sort of scene, you know, all the president's yeah. men sort of scene. But but what what you're you're on the cutting edge of a completely different form of journalism. Well, I mean, I, I think again the, no, the knowledge that this is possible is probably our biggest contribution to the trade uh, because many others started doing this and are doing it as well or even better. The explosion of open source departments in, in traditional media after 2014 is large and the New York Times has one and the Spiegel has one. So I think it's happening uh, much more than it was, partly thanks to us. But I think what the magic formula is in the responsible use of such methods because... Sure. A lot of other, let's say, civic journalists who saw us uh, excelling at this, they started doing their own investigations and publishing names of people that are just falsely identified or just incompletely um, certainly identified. And that's exactly what should not be happening because these this tool sets allows everybody to be an investigator, but not everybody should because there's a lot of self-imposed boundaries that you have to have. And uh, it's very difficult to uh, to achieve that balance. Yeah, no, no, obviously. And then, you know, the whole ethics of how journalism operates in the future with this data-driven world is going to be something that's going to be taught in universities, it's going to be taught in schools. But as you said, it's down to the individual. Can I ask you, Christo, before we go, about your own experience in Ukraine? You know, there is the fog of war. We are getting, certainly in the West, we're getting a Western side. We're getting, you know, pro-European, pro-Ukrainian, etc. What's your sense? You've been there quite a lot. You see what's going on. What's your sense of how things are progressing? Well, I mean, the Ukraine, if you ask any Ukrainian whether they will win the war, 99% will say yes, they will win the war. I mean, the the level of uh, belief in their own superiority militarily and emotionally and ideologically is second to none. Conversely, the sort of loss of faith in themselves among the Russian soldiers is is also very large. So if we were talking about anything less than a five to one ratio of people or military uh, equipment uh, in favor of Russia, I could still predict a victory for Ukraine just because the level of motivation is so much and and even professionalism at this point on the Ukrainian side. Uh, What I'm really afraid of, uh, if I take a side here, is that a protracted war, um, anything more than six months from now, will lead to a loss of interest by the West in supporting Ukraine. And I can feel that in Austria, I can feel that in Germany. Um, and then this ratio, this ratio, this magical ratio may increase in favor of Russia, and then Russia will can quickly win. So, And that's what Putin is hoping for, that's what he's waiting for, um, his current only a useful um, strategies to defer and, and delay and make the war a two-year, three-year project and hope that uh, Ukraine runs out of support. So it's really a, a matter not much of what Ukrainians will do, but what the rest of the world will do. So that's why it's hard to predict. And can I ask you just about your your knowledge now, your pretty, I would say, unique uh, knowledge of the internal Russian system, the military operations. What is the risk that Russia... And the guys that you track down, the the people that you follow, what is the risk that they do something abominable or more abominable, as in use some low-grade nuclear weapons, use that sort of apocalyptic final tactic if the war doesn't go well for them? Because you follow these guys. The war is not going well for them. And this was top of the mind of my worry list in the sort of in March when, when the Russians experienced the first shock of 
uh, this becoming an embarrassment. And I was really afraid that uh, even President Putin might give, issue the instruction of either a low-grade or, or a full-blown nuclear attack. Now, the way some of our sources in the Russian security services explained why this is unlikely to happen is that Putin would all, only issue such a command if he's sure that it will be implemented. But because of the loss of credibility in his own skill set among the uh, top echelon of the military, there was a chance that somebody would not follow his instruction to launch a nuclear device of any description. And because he's aware that this insubordination would be essentially the last day of, on, on the job or on this earth, he will not do that just because he's not certain it will happen. This does not remove completely the risk that somebody rogue will use something smaller because a rogue operator cannot get access to the, the red uh, briefcase. Uh, but something lower like a nuclear-equipped uh, shell round, which is still available in Russia, can be launched even by the likes of Wagner, the likes of private military companies. So that that risk exists, and it's a matter of what happens domestically in this strife that we see at the top of the military. Because you you're seeing that the uh, the PMCs are getting much and more more and more credibility at the expense of the army. Who sorry, who are the PMCs? The PMCs these are private military companies. There are okay. three okay. or four companies that have between. A thousand soldiers each and and ten thousand soldiers each, but these PMCs have been more successful than the regular army, and they're the ones that are less controlled by self-interest, by by national interest, and so on and so forth. So they've become players on their own. So it's almost like you have a bunch of rogue rogue mini armies going around, and the risk of something nasty happening because they want to play a bigger role is tangible. Finally, Christopher, before you go. What's your sense of the integrity of Russia, the ability of Russia to stay together after this war? Do you, you know, is there a risk? I mean, I know you're originally, you know, you're a Bulgarian, so you, you've seen the end of the Soviet bloc. You've seen the end of the Warsaw Pact. You've lived through moments where large institutional structures collapse uh, and collapse very, very quickly. What's your sense that this could also happen in Russia? Because, you know, Russia is a country of, what, seven or eight time zones, various different ethnic minorities, you know, huge internal strife potentially. What's your sense of how it all holds together? It's really a very complicated futuristic formula that one needs to look at because it really depends on how long-term and harsh the reparations imposed on Russia and sanctions imposed on Russia will be after the war. Because you can imagine that a part of the country currently that is ethnically more different than Moscow. Take Tatarstan, for example, which is largely a different ethnic minority. They're Muslim. Or take Chechnya or Dagestan. They are not likely to stick around and, and be part of a country that is, for the next 20 years, going to be paying back reparations if they can afford to separate. And there's always been centrifugal movements in those countries. So I can imagine several of these small republics splinter off. I don't see a major risk of the whole country becoming a feudal sort of uh, disintegration of like uh, seven or eight mini-Russias. But yes, I can see three or four republics that already had ethnic strife with the center uh, using this opportunity to improve their life after the war. And then does Ukraine become maybe the most important country in the world for the foreseeable future? Because the whole world is playing out there. 
Well, yes, and uh, I agree. And after the war, there will be a Marshall Plan sort of situation where a lot of infusion of capital to rebuild Ukraine, but also under new rules of, of no corruption or, or less corruption. So Ukraine will, in mo- the most likely scenario, become a very modern very transparent country, which has already proven to be also brave and educated and decentralized in terms of their decision-making. So I can see it as a role model for Russia, what remains of Russia after that, to try to catch up with. Fascinating stuff. Christo, we'll leave it there. That was fascinating. Thank you so much. And that's what happens when you bump into an Irish bloke at a dinner in in New York. (laughs) Okay, cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Take care. Mark, there is a huge amount to talk about there, and it's uh, it's quite frightening, actually. But before we do that, let's do a bit of this. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. John, you said it's quite frightening, but the, the upside is the conclusion that if we, that's I mean the West, doesn't buckle, Okay, keep supporting the Ukrainians, that people like Christo, now Christo's been in Ukraine for the last six months. Mm. He's also involved in a production of a movie about Zelensky, which is from the same team that produced the Navalny documentary, which won the Sundance documentary of the year, the Sundance Festival, yeah. and is up for an Oscar. Right, right. So these guys know the Zelensky team, mm. they're involved there. And so what he's saying about the Ukrainians with this, having this enormous confidence that they're going to win, clearly Putin feels that too, that they're going to win on the field, Yeah, which is precisely why he's bombing the civilians, which is precisely why that's fascinating. You know, the coin collector, that guy yeah. who's yeah, instructing yeah, yeah. everybody to actually get down. These, were, these are civilians. These are not soldiers who are pressing the button. But the, the thing that struck me about that is the fact that they're, 
there's this bunch of guys located wherever they're located. The guys and girls, actually, because if you right. look at the, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're located wherever they are, but they're dislocated from the actual front line. They're desensitized from, they're not yeah, actually you called seen. them gamers, didn't you? you thought, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They remind me of gamers. Actually, there's a really good movie called Eye in the Sky, which is, touches on a similar thing, and it's about they're trying to prevent a suicide bombing. And they know that these... So it's the same geolocating things and... Yeah, exactly. And they've a drone overhead and they're just about to bomb. But there's a little girl outside... Well, it's American, bread of course. It's American, yeah. There, but has, the there, guys, has to, there has to be a, you know, there has to be a moral dilemma. Yeah. You know. And, and it's based in, in Kenya. But the actual bombers, the actual guys flying the drones are in a desert in Nevada. And they just log on, you know, click their, you know, their timesheet yeah, yeah. at nine in the morning, do their bombing and log out. Well, I mean, five. I suppose this is exactly what Christo's saying, that the Russians who are doing this are exactly the same. Mm. That And they know from geolocating their phones that they're out in bars and they're in clubs and they're having a normal life in yeah. Moscow or in St. Petersburg. And as you say, they go in and they... Clock yeah. in and clock out. And, and it's a bit like, as I was saying, what, like the gamers, they have that kind of, possibly that gamer kind of mentality where they're desensitized. They're desensitized, you know. And but what's, what's fascinating about this thing is the fact that he's saying the Russian cruise missile technology is as good as the American cruise missiles. So mm. these things shouldn't make mistakes. Yeah. So yeah. the killing of civilians, the targeting of civilians, and isn't, a, blocks it and, isn't a mistake. Yeah, yeah. But it's also this whole idea that you're bombing the infrastructure to try and destroy the country. But fascinatingly, if you look at all the evidence of bombing countries into submission, a lot of it suggests the following, right? Malcolm Gladwell, in a book, David and Goliath, mm. talked about why, for example the German bombing of London, the Blitz, which went on for eight months, okay, yeah. didn't work. So what was going on in the mentality of the people that were being bombed rather than the bombers, which is another interesting psychological profile. And the conclusion was what happens when the city is bombed is three things. You're either hit, it's either a near miss or a remote miss. So in the case of the Blitz in London, 40,000 people were killed in a city of 8 million. Mm. That's a half a percent of the total population killed. Okay. A lot. Another 50,000 were near misses. So they experienced, they saw the bombing. Mm. So that's about 1% were either killed or were experienced near misses and were traumatized. Mm. The 99% that didn't get hit, that experienced what they call the remote bombing, right? Interesting, in their psychology, something bizarre happens. They feel like God. What? So the psychology is if you've survived the Blitz, right? Why did Londoners react with such sort of gumption, right? Yeah. Because 99% of people weren't hit and 99% of people believed because they weren't hit was something to do with them. And they became much stronger. They, they, they sort of, a, well, fuck this, I'm the man. Right. So come okay. and have a go, Mr. Hitler, right? And exactly the same thing must be happening in Kiev. That, right. That basically those who survive which are the vast, are vast majority, are completely emboldened. They're saying, mm. fuck you. Yeah. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And that's what's happening. So and all those like, little wins as all well. Those, in, in so the psychology for the yeah. Ukrainians is quite, quite different to the psychology of those who believe that they're going to change their mind by bombing. Right? 
Now, the reason that Putin probably thinks they're going to win by this is because the last bombing the Russians were involved in was the carpet bombing of Homs and yeah. Aleppo in Syria, yeah. where they destroyed the entire city. Yeah. So there, were, there wasn't a near-miss scenario. Everything was flattened. So everybody's subjugated because everyone's terrified. But in the case of Kiev, they're not doing this because they can't do this. Mm. So you have this sort of situation that... But they are in some of the smaller towns in... in but but in my point is, Donbass think about the psychology. Stuff. Yeah. Think yeah. about the psychology. So therefore, it's up to us to buckle because the Ukrainians won't buckle. Yeah. And therefore, if the Ukrainians lose this war, they can almost only lose if the West abandons them. And that's why it's so crucial to stay and stick to the road. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.